If you want to get somebody's attention, just tell them a great story. Hi, this is your host, Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. With every woman, I am more and more convinced that our success stories are like roadmaps. When we tell them, we show another woman how to get to where she wants to go. For this interview, we are in Palm Springs, California, at a legendary place called the Ocotillo Lodge, which was built by Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, in 1948. Lots of famous movie stars stayed here. It is just fantastic. And this is where I am talking to a smart and kind woman I met years ago in Boston when we both worked for a privately owned radio group called Greater Media. She was the director of national sales and I was on the programming side, but we became friends immediately. She made the move to L.A. to run another cluster of radio stations, and she's now working for Pandora. In her spare time, she's devoted to the issue of homelessness. I couldn't wait to catch up with her and share her success story with you. Her name is Marcy Mills, and this is her story. Marcy, welcome to the show. Candy, thank you so much. I have not been able to get this smile off my face since we connected two weeks ago. Let's start with your current position as the senior sales executive at Pandora. I love the slogan for Pandora, where everyone is effortlessly connected to the voices, the stories, and the music they love. Tell us what you do. Well, I sell ads. I work specifically for Pandora. We were bought by Sirius XM about two years ago, which is another amazing company. Went from maybe 800 people in my company at the very most to 7,000, I think now. We were a music streaming site, and now we're just what it says. You know, we have some of the best talk content available. Podcast network that is 40 million plus, you know, monthly listeners. So I sell ads, which keeps Pandora ad-supported radio. The streaming space started, which would have been around 09, when I had the miracle of a chance to jump in. We started as an ad-supported platform. The other folks who came in, you know, our friendly competitors like Spotify and now Apple and Amazon Home and Google Home, you know, they're subscriber-based. How do you sell Pandora versus terrestrial radio? Because that's kind of our background. It's a whole different animal, though, isn't it? Well, that's my favorite story. And I stand up in front of rooms, conference rooms at ad agencies and clients all the time and get to tell the story. So thanks for asking. It, again, back when we rolled it out, it was so different from broadcast radio, from anything any marketer or brand had ever seen before. I mean, it was literally a rocket ship. All of the challenges of broadcast radio were improved upon. I mean, here was the possibility for you to buy specifically women 18 to 49, right? We had first-person registration data. When you first signed up for Pandora, you told me you were a woman. You told me your age. You told me your zip code where you lived. So all of a sudden, you're not going to get served an ad for men's deodorant. An ad is going to be more compelling to you which means it's going to be a better experience for the user, but also a more effective buy for the advertiser. And little touches like you couldn't hit a button during a commercial message and change the station. If you didn't engage with your tuner, it would say something like, have you left the room? Are you still listening? 
So we're not going to serve an ad to an empty room because we had to pay for every song we played. So that was really fun that you could bring this to the ad community and show them something that was better than broadcast radio could ever dream of being. So that's it was the story 12 years ago, and it's the same story today for Pandora. And speaking of music, it must be so exciting for you to be around the music so much. When I think of Pandora, I also think of how many new artists have been discovered and how many different formats have been discovered. Talk about that. That's my other favorite story. When I started at Pandora, there was a gal there named Karen Dizel. She was an account manager, you know, helping with the planning unbelievable, just magical voice, singer-songwriter, like like a Nora Jones. And typically, she would never have had a chance of getting her music out into the world. But because of a Pandora, she had the same chance as a Nora Jones to get her music out to the world. So if I start a Nora Jones station, and I'm driving down Wilshire Boulevard listening to Pandora in my car, and I turn it on, there was a, a great chance that Karen Dizel could pop on the radio. What Tim Westergren, the founder and inventor of Pandora and the music Gino, he was a musician himself. He had a band and he couldn't get, you know, radio stations, right? Nine out of 10 musicians can't. Of course not, right? His goal was to democratize the music industry for unknown artists. He wanted it so that a million artists could make a living and not the top 200 artists make a fortune. And it's what he did. It's one of those one guy with a great idea accomplished so much for artists and at the same time for advertisers because he built a better audio ad machine. Before Pandora, you had been running a sales team at huge clusters in Los Angeles at CBS and then at iHeart. Give us some career highlights from that time in your life. I was so lucky. You know, when people ask me about my career, it always comes down to luck. It always came down to being in the right place, but more importantly, having the right coach. I never call him a boss or a manager. I had great coaches along the way, you know, that made me better and shoved me in the right direction. And if I raised my hand, I said, I, I want to go work in network radio. I want to go to Los Angeles. There was somebody standing there saying, Come with me, little girl, right? (laughs) I'll give you a chance. I mean, that's really how it went. I had one great chance after another work for great companies, CBS, Disney, Clear Channel, and had uh, great jobs in great cities, LA, San Jose, San Francisco, Boston. It um, It was always because of great coaches and other great mentors, other saleswomen that I sat next to and, you know, listened over the cube. I'll say what they're saying. They said that. I'm going to say that, too. Right. Let's go back to how we met in the 1990s in Boston at Magic 106.7 and your role there as the director of sales. That was a fun job. And I wanted that job when I was first stepping into sales. I thought, I want I want that gig. I want to do that NSM gig because they always had a suitcase packed, you know, and a plane ticket to New York in their pocket and an expense account. I thought, I'm going to go do that. And it's exactly what it was. We were responsible for the national ads that played, you know, all the national revenue. So we flew to the other big ad cities, New York, Chicago, and LA. And built relationships, great relationships with amazing media buyers, right, and ad agencies and got to talk about big brands and and help them choose the radio stations that they were going to buy. You know, I also got to work for great radio companies, you know, Magic 106.7. I knew then it was good in Boston, right, top radio station in the market, 
book after book, year after year. But I didn't know how good till I went out to other markets, right? And I heard their version of Magic 106.7. And I look back and I think, boy, that was good. That little engine that could in Boston, that was some radio station. So I worked for The Wave in L.A., the first and one of the best smooth jazz radio station in the country, worked for smart people. Yeah, it was fun. In our time together at Magic, we both experienced something which had to do with the FCC. All of a sudden, the FCC allowed stations in the mid-1990s to own more than one FM in a single market. And suddenly, radio stations became radio groups with multiple formats. And so all of a sudden, for somebody like you, you're selling multiple stations to advertisers. Stations that were once competitors found themselves under the same roof, and it was phenomenal. Talk a little bit about that from the sales perspective. It was a big leap, and it's funny because it was the first big leap. I had been in radio for so long, and other than you were going to launch a new format on that little dial position, there was never such a big change as that one. And radio companies, people, the staff, salespeople, you know, came together. But I will tell you, in my opinion, you know, which is many agree, it wasn't good for broadcast radio. It wasn't good for those brands because the smaller stations that may have had great, hardworking teams and passion and love and a privately owned and they, they went away. They weren't anymore. They were the fifth ranked station in my group. Am I worried about it? No, I can't worry about that. I'm going to worry about the top two. And formats went away, right? All of a sudden, maybe there were wasn't a classical anymore, or there wasn't a a jazz station in a market anymore, because they couldn't put the love and the passion behind it. It wasn't good for radio. So many mom and pop stations just simply went away because they couldn't compete against these new groups of stations that had so much more market share, as we call it in our business. What does it take to be a great salesperson in any industry, Marcy Mills? It's relationships where the relationships come from. And they come from trust, they come from empathy, and they come from integrity. The things that build great relationships are the things that build great salespeople. And my success, I said earlier, it came from my coaches. It comes from customers. I'm calling on some of the same women today that I did 25 years ago. I watch them have babies. I watch their children grow up. We're friends. We're family. And in that is the trust. And we do good business together today. And that's why I've gotten to be, you know, have the career I have. You know, I had an idea for a public affairs program when we were working together at Magic 106.7. And the idea was that I figured there are so many women doing great things not just in Boston, but around the world. What if we had a weekly program about women who are exceptional in what they do? And it was a hard idea to sell originally, but my program director, Don Kelly, really embraced it. And then the sales department embraced it. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I wanted to talk about it a little bit in this show is because it's very rare for a public affairs program to rise and become kind of part of the brand of a radio station. And that is what happened. In a way, a show like that was an early podcast, right? Think about the content today in podcasts, right? That's not public affairs programming. It's storytelling. It's storytelling, right? And it it pertained to 50% of the population. We don't, women weren't hearing stories about us, right? What was on talk radio? 
news, and sports. This was about women for women. Let's talk a little bit about you and growing up, because I believe our childhood really lays that foundation. So tell us a little bit about where you come from and what life was like in your house. That's a sweet story to tell. There were six kids, eight people, one bathroom, a little house in Wellesley. And uh, my mother was born to be a mom, although she had a career before she started having children. But she was good at being a mom. You know, she was loving and playful and whimsical. And we learned how to do everything every holiday, make things with sparkles and glue. We learned how to sing and to dance and to play in the snow. It was a great childhood. Idyllic we, childhood, idyllic it sounds childhood. like. I mean, it was a New England family. We didn't get around to talk about our, our emotions or anything like that. We do that in our 40s on the therapist couch. But it was really good and it was safe. And there was food in the refrigerator and you knew where your meal was coming from and your father was coming home at night and we went to good schools. And it is more apparent to me now. We learn things later in our rearview mirror and we see them much yeah. more clearly. It's way more apparent to me now just the the good fortune that I was raised in that led to where I am today. I went to Framingham State College, which I think was, I don't even want to tell you what it cost a year, very, very little. It's a great school, huge opportunity, tons of majors to find your interest. It was a commuter school nearby. Four out of six of the kids in my family went there. Who were your role models when you were growing up? My older siblings, you know, set, set the right course. My older brother went to college. My old, older sisters all went to college before me. I was child number five. And there were rules in the house. That's what we were going to do. You know, we weren't going to marry our high school boyfriends. We were going to go to college and pursue a career. And that was just understood. You know what I learned mostly from my mother is when I look back at the things that were important to her, voting right? Voting, critically important. Don't she complain had, if you're she, not going to pull the lever. She had a few kids and two strollers, and she pushed them down to Hardy School to make sure that uh, she voted. I had a phenomenal English teacher, Mrs. Rosenfield, in high school. Um, we were in Girl Scouts and Sunday school. You know, we had a typical New England upbringing. Where does your work ethic come from and who taught you that work ethic? Um, again, uh, uh, one could say a given in my house. You know, there, were no, there was no slacking, right? We weren't sitting on the, on the couch with a clicker in our hands watching cartoons. We had jobs like you, like you at a very early age, right? Whether we were shoveling snow or delivering newspaper or selling Girl Scout cookies, we had jobs in high school. I worked at the Music Box downtown Wellesley. I was selling records in high school. So my parents and my older siblings, you know, they set the course. You had mentioned earlier that you went to Framingham State University. There is a scholarship named after you. And I know you're very proud of that. What is your hope for someone who receives this scholarship, the Marcy Mills Scholarship? The complete name of it is the Marcy Mills Dream Big Scholarship. It's, in fact, it's carved on a bench outside the, the community center I'll have to there. go sit on yeah, it. I hope you do. <laughs> so that's my hope, is to help students dream big. We talked about my parents. My mother w- would influence us to dream big. My older siblings would influence me to dream big. 85% of the kids at Framingham State are on financial aid, and many are on Pell. And when you think about a lot of them are first-generation kids, and they have other responsibilities at home, multi-generational, they take care of grandparents and children, it might be a four-and-a-half, five-year program to get out of school. They wear, I like to say, we wore our waitress uniforms to class, right? It was about, if I don't 
earn that next $500. I can't go next semester. I'll have to take the semester off. Who is teaching them to dream big? So what I love doing is going back there a couple of times a year and lecturing, just speaking in some of the classrooms. And although I speak about global marketing or digital media, I like to remind them of what they have accomplished by self-funding their education because they come out feeling less than, right? There's somebody from Northeastern or BU that's applying for the same job, right? Maybe I should just stay right here and work for my family's heating company or something like that. I tell them to lead with their story in a job interview, that they took four and a half or five years because they self-funded their education. I respect someone who can get into a fancier school, but we got to play to our strengths, right? There is a chance that person, that student has never seen an invoice and they know that they're going to go back next semester. And an awful lot of the kids at Framingham State don't know it. In fact, they were so, they found that so many kids were living in their cars that they built a food pantry on the campus about three years ago, pre COVID. Can't blame it on that. And there were long lines to get in the day that it opened. So those are some of the secrets of Framingham State College. And so my message is to dream big and open their eyes to the ability to dream big. Speaking of people living in their cars, Mm. the issue of homelessness here in California and particularly in Los Angeles is unbelievable. And you've been so involved Mm -hmm. through some nonprofits. And I hope you can use this chance to tell people what you've learned and what you see. It is heart-wrenching. It is traumatic to see it. It's traumatic to live in it in the tents. It's traumatic to drive by it. It's traumatic to see it and not be able to do anything. I don't know what the solutions are. I don't know what they are. I have a million ideas and probably none of them are good. But I started to work in women and children's shelter homes. When women have children and become homeless, most often escaping domestic violence or unlawful eviction or both, is they can't raise their hand and look for services and say, I need help, because the first thing that's going to happen is the state will take their kids away. So they live in their cars, they live in abandoned buildings. So I work with an organization called Venice Community Housing, which is incredible people. In fact, the, one of the women who I've become close to who runs one of the small houses, about seven or eight moms and their kids, she was homeless herself, unlawfully evicted because her husband walked out on her. She had a couple little kids. She can't work. She's got a couple little kids. So they move into the, the, the car and it'll only be for a couple nights. And it was an entire year in, in a McDonald's parking lot where she bathed the kids in the bathroom and fed them and took them to school every day and tried to make life as normal as possible. It was her pediatrician that directed her to Venice Community Housing. So what VCH does is it provides a few of these homes as safe havens because once the woman gets in there with the kids, now she's got a home. Okay, now she can get on her feet, get a job, get the kids in school, get her paperwork, whatever it is to get low income apartments. So those hurdles, right? What if you are in a domestic violence situation? Woman like that can't sit in the family law court all day long waiting for her name to be called so she can get a restraining order. So I have learned so much about that and watched their trauma. I do very, very little. I, I wish I did more. I do very little. I started by going and working with the kids. We'll do Valentine card making with the kids next week, which is what I love to do. Again, glue sticks and sparkles flying. Your mother. Channel- my mother. Channeling my mother. your mom. That's right, my mother. But what I found when I, I was 
was there a few times was in early on was there were empty bike racks and these kids can live there age zero to 12 or 13 you know coming and going they'll stay for a month six months a year and there's no bikes and these are critical years for bikes right get your your training wheels on get your training wheels off right off we go well guess what happened Hello, social media, right? You tell a story about women and children who are suffering, boy, does the conversation turn because typically social media is used with people ranting against the homeless, right? How dare they be on my street? How dare they be a tent in my neighborhood? But you talk about women and children and people want to help, thank God. They just don't know the story. I also discovered that that town is full of garages with a lot of unused bikes in them because when you're rich, your kid gets a bike every time it grows an inch. I have friends with pickup trucks and they pick up and they deliver. VCH also has a place called Roots to Grow. There's a couple of houses for 17 to 23-year-olds who have aged out of foster care and they can't live on their own yet. And they're trying to get jobs, right? And How go to school. How many bikes did you find? We did about close to 200 now. So every time I get a pile of bikes to deliver, I post it on, look at all the bikes we're delivering. Hey, if you know anyone, and the next thing you know, my email lights up and I get more bikes. So it brings fun. you great joy, doesn't oh, it? You have no idea. I'm grateful that I get to see mm. how difficult, how traumatic, how chaotic it is to live in poverty anyway. But if you have children and you live in poverty, and you also might be dodging the, the father of your children in a violent situation, I mean, how do women live in that? It's heart-wrenching, and I am truly, I am, I'm grateful that I know it now because I get to do what I do and because I've become an influencer. I get to tell this story and watch women surprised by it. They don't know. You don't know what you don't know. We are not a right-to-shelter state, California, which is our problem. More homeless die of hypothermia in California than they do in Chicago or Boston. In Boston, if you have 50,000 homeless, you have to have 50,000 beds. We don't because we're not a right-to-shelter state. So if they pop a tent on a sidewalk, there's nothing we can do because we have nowhere to, to put them. And here's what it is. It's an excuse for us not to have to. An awful lot of the homeless population can't be housed in shelters. They can't be given the keys to a low-income apartment. They need mental health facilities. I do things at a very low level. I'm going to get a pick up a bike. I'm going to pick up a crib. I'm going to go and play with the kids this weekend and do something um, hands-on with the kids and, and chat with the women and hear their stories. I love connecting with them and listening and hopefully inspiring them too, just like I inspire people to help. I hope I inspire them. That's all I do. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? And can you share that with our listeners today? I was an emotional salesperson, right? A lot of smiles and a lot of tears. And I got the advice all the time from a boss, it's not personal. And I have always taken it personally, always, right? It's who I am. And I think it's what drives me is taking it personally. So Horizon Media, which is a big ad agency in Los Angeles, I've been working with them for years. I have good friends within those walls. And maybe four or five years ago, I walked in and they redid their lobby. And in great big letters in their lobby, it says business is personal. And I sort of did the, I told you so, 25 years later, I told you so. 
What do you wish you knew when you first got started? I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change a thing, which very rare to hear somebody say that. I want to do it again. Final question, and thank you so much for joining me here in Palm Springs, and it's been so great to be in the same room with you, Marcy. I've been a fan of yours for such a long time and admire you so much. Right now, with a career that has spanned decades, how do you define success? I don't know anything else except loving what I do. I have loved what I do since the day I started as a sales assistant at WMRQ in Boston, call letters you wouldn't even recognize. I have done and still get to do at my ripe old age. I still get to do something I love and am constantly learning because I got to get into the digital space and doing it around people that I respect and love and that are smarter than me. Gratitude, grateful every day. You have gratitude tattooed on your arm. I was so happy to put that word that's so important to me, grateful, on my arm because I feel it every single day. And if for a moment I don't remember to be, then there it is. It's my favorite work. I want to say thank you, Marcy Mills, for being our guest this week on The Story Behind Her Success. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much, Candy. And that's The Story Behind Her Success for this week. If you know a woman I should interview for the show, reach out and tell me about her. Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. There's also a full library of stories for you to listen to anytime you need a little dose of inspiration. Follow me on Facebook at Candy O'Terry Official and on all other platforms at Candy O'Terry. And whether you're listening on one of our radio affiliates or from your smartphone, we'll have a fresh episode for you next week on the story behind her success. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise.